Genesis chapter 22, the first 19 verses. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I, here I am rather. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and cleaved the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his son, said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might appreciate and understand not only all of the things that thou hast done on our behalf, but what things thou hast imputed to us by virtue of thy grace, love, and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, last week, as you'll recall, um, 
Actually, two weeks ago, we covered the first section of Genesis 22 here, and we saw what a great type of Christ that Isaac was and what a great type of God the Father was Abraham, for it was Abraham who by himself made the offering of his son Isaac. He claved the wood, he carried the knife, he carried the fire indicative of God's wrath, did everything that was required to um, offer up his son Isaac, um, went by himself, left the young men at the bottom of the hill, went up the hill fully appreciative of and believing that he would return with his son because he says that. He says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. So we saw that uh, the question was asked on the way up the hill, uh, where's the offering? Um, and uh, he shared with us that my son, God will provide himself for a burnt offering. So we need to appreciate that what um, prophetic language is in there, that God himself will be the sacrifice. So last week we looked at James chapter 2 where it says that Abraham was justified by his works. And so we saw that as evidentiary justification. In other words, the interpretation of it comes from Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 where we read that um, Abel, by virtue of his more excellent sacrifice, revealed that he was, it bare witness that he was righteous. And so what he did bore witness that he was righteous. And so we're going to look at this issue of righteousness this morning as we go through um, verses um, 14 through uh, 19 and see what things the Lord has in here that we might appreciate in the context of what is being offered up here and what Abraham did and what Abraham was told to do. I've shared with us many times that there's this interesting tension in the scripture between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Man is justly held accountable for his sins, though we know that God can restrain sins in man. And man is rewarded for his obedience. You see that in Deuteronomy 28, where you have a section, you know, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So we see God intrinsically infused in what things we do, uh, um, And uh, he holds us accountable for what things we do, either in a positive way or in a negative way. We're more familiar with the negative side of it, but I want us to see this morning the positive side of it. So looking first at verse 14, um, I want us to, uh, I'm going to go verse by verse and look at some things here. In verse 14 of Genesis 22, we read, it says, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. So why would he call it that name, and what does it mean? What does that name mean, and what is it that shall be seen, and what is the mount that is in view there? Well, as I shared with us, the context has to do with the offering up as Isaac as a type of Christ. And so Jehovah-Jireh means Jehovah, and Jehovah means the self-existing one will see. That Jehovah means a self-existing one, we can appreciate when Moses sees, quote, the angel of the Lord, you know, on the backside of the desert on the uh, mount of God, he sees the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord identifies himself as I am, meaning I ever exist, I've always existed, I will ever continue to exist. So Jehovah, meaning the self-existing one, will see. That's what is set before us here, that he will see it in the mount of the Lord. So the question now is, What mount and what shall be seen? Well, where are they? They're on Mount Moriah. And as we talked about two weeks ago, what took place at Mount Moriah, if you roll the clock 2,000 years forward, well, that's, of course, where Christ himself was offered up on the cross. So what shall be seen? Of course, God himself 
shall see himself as the lamb that was offered up for a burnt offering. That's what it says in verse 8 there. When Abraham answers his son's question, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So Jehovah will see himself upon the mount. God will see himself as the offering. He will see Christ, who is identified as the Lamb of God by John the Baptist, which taketh away the sin of the world. That is what Jehovah will see. Um, he will see he who is one with God. Jesus said, uh, you know, in the Gospel of John, that he was one with the Father. So when God sees Christ, he's seeing himself as that which is offered up, up on, on the cross. And he will see him in the same location where Abraham offers up what is described as his only son and his uh, only begotten son. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, it describes Isaac as his only begotten son. And as his beloved son, he's identified twice. Obviously, that fits the description of Christ. He is uh, the beloved son of God, and he is the only begotten son of God the Father. Isaac, obviously, being born through a miraculous process by which uh, Abraham was without strength to conceive and did, and with um, Sarah, she was uh, past the manner of women, and yet she conceived. So the typology is so very strong there that when the Lord is looking down and speaking, the angel of the Lord is speaking to Abraham, telling him not to slay his son, but rather use the ram that's caught in the thicket. We saw that as Christ, who uh, was caught entangled in our sins. His strength and his power was entangled in our sins. So the typology is so very strong there that we know, obviously, what's in view here, that God is going to see himself. Um, in Hebrews eleven nineteen, it does say that Abraham received up his son in a figure from the dead, which we know that he's going to appreciate when he says, I and the lad will go up and we will come back. He knew that when he offered up a son, when he slew his son, that his son would be raised from the dead and he would, in fact, come back down the mountain with him here. So clearly the cross of Christ is in view in terms of what is set before us here, Christ being the anti-type, the fulfillment of all of the, um, the types that are set before us here. Um, that it will be seen upon the mountain, um, we, I have already stated that God himself will see it, but men have seen it too. Uh, we sang about the old rugged cross this morning. The cross is all over this planet. Our cross is lifted up on top of buildings where uh, people gather and worship. The Apostle Paul, when he's speaking before the King Agrippa, makes a statement that what was done was, quote, not done in a corner. It was not done in a corner, but that it was really very public, the crucifixion of Christ. So quite a number of people saw the offering that God the Father was making of God the Son, though they did not recognize it as such. Nevertheless, it was true. Now, in terms of what God will see, not only did he see the, um, his son being offered up uh, on the cross, but specifically it says in Isaiah fifty three eleven that he, the father, shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So when God the father was looking upon uh, his son um, suffering on the cross, he saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied that um, his wrath had, uh, having been poured out on Christ because of our sins, he was satisfied that our sins were indeed paid for by virtue of what his son, his beloved son, had suffered on the cross. Because he continues and says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Christ offered on the cross for our benefit 
uh, bore our iniquities and raised again, as the scripture says, for our justification, meaning God was satisfied with what um, he had offered and then raised him again, indicative of that very thing. And then we are thereby justified by what he had done. So God will see this satisfaction. Uh, he will be satisfied by virtue of what he sees, and he will see the resurrected Christ there on Mount Zion, which is another name for the place where the Lord was offered up, um, which is where the earthly Jerusalem lies. So in, in the reality of, of the time in which we live, um, God saw all of that take place in point of time when he had ordained that it should be as such. He will also see uh, that same lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem where the Lord speaks to us about in, in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 22 and 23 where it talks about the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion where there are an innumerable company of angels and the general assembly and church of Christ and the spirits of just men made perfect. So when he looks down upon what all of that he sees there, he will see Christ and he sees the entire church which is in Christ um, with the Lord uh, in this heavenly Jerusalem. The Lord having paid for all of their sins, we are united with him, and the entire church was resurrected when Christ was resurrected as well. And then we read from Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, where it speaks of the Lamb as it had been slain. He shall be seen in the midst of the throne of God. So there is Christ in his victory, uh, having um, paid for the, um, the sins of all of the church, having redeemed them unto the Father. The Lord will see all of that. And so uh, Jehovah Jireh, the mount, is aptly named in terms of all that the Lord will see when he looks down upon it, having accomplished everything that he set out to accomplish with respect to the redemption of men. Now in verse 15, it says there, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and we appreciate that the angel of the Lord is Jehovah himself because he says, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. So the angel of the Lord is identified for us here as being Jehovah himself. And we also get that identification from um, Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is speaking to the angel of the Lord in the fire that does not consume the bush. So the angel of the Lord is God himself, and he is the one speaking, and he is the one who has sworn that he's going to uh, bless Abraham. Um, we appreciate that Christ himself is the consummate angel of the Lord, angel meaning messenger, that Christ is the expressed image of God, and he is the brightness of his glory. So what better angel could there possibly be of God than God himself? And indeed, the Gospel of John opens with those words that in the beginning was the Word. That's a vehicle of communication. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And so even by virtue of his very name, Christ being referred to as the Word of God, we can appreciate his... Um, uh, communicative, the office by which he is designated, the communicator, the angel of, of the Lord. So um, we appreciate, we see here that um, the Lord swears what he's going to do or pro makes a promise of what he's going to do, and then he swears by himself. In Hebrews 6.13, it talks about how by two immutable things God swore upon himself because there is no, nothing higher that anybody could swear upon than God himself that uh, he made a promise, and it says that God who cannot lie made a promise, and so we can appreciate that indeed everything's going to be true that God says, and that's really a condensation on God's part. He really shouldn't have to do that, shouldn't have to share that to us. It's like him saying, 
I really, really mean I'm going to do this particular thing rather than simply saying that he is uh, going to do it. Um, now, here's where I think it gets very interesting. Um, verse 17 through 18, um, I find it very interesting that the Lord would say the things that he says here. I wonder why he says the things that he says here. Why this is even? Why do we need Genesis chapter 22 in the Bible at all for God's uh, promises to come to fruition? Well, I think he's trying to teach us something. In verse 17, he says that in blessing, I will bless thee. So he's talking about making a specific blessing to Abraham. And in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed. Now he's talking about something different here. He's not talking about Isaac. He's talking about Christ by virtue of the um, um, blessings or the multiplying that he's speaking about here. And also we have the benefit of uh, Galatians chapter 3, um, verse 15, which I want to read just so I don't get any of the words wrong. Um, Galatians three fifteen. it says, excuse me, 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. This is certainly a promise. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the Lord is very clearly identifying for us here in Galatians 3.16 that thy seed here is speaking about Christ himself. So it's no surprise to us that we read that he's going to multiply it as the stars of heaven and the sand which is upon the seashore, because we can appreciate that God has both celestial glory and terrestrial glory, which, as you'll recall, when Joseph has two dreams with his brethren, one of them is a terrestrial-oriented, where the sheaves of, uh, that represent his brethren bow down to him as a sheaf, and then how the uh, sun, moon, and the stars all bow down to him also as well. So we see Christ has both terrestrial glory and celestial glory. Uh, glory, So that helps us to um, um, appreciate all that Christ is and that all that he has authority over. All things have been placed underneath his feet. And it says here, and thy seed, that would be Christ again, shall possess the gates of his enemies. You'll recall from Deuteronomy when the, Moses is setting up the law, he says that in the gates of a city, in the city gates, that's where judgment is rendered. So for thy seed to possess the gates of his enemies is to say that Christ will indeed rule over all things. Jesus, when he's um, talking to Peter about his church in um, Matthew um, chapter 16, says that um, and upon faith, upon the rock of faith will himself, will he build his church and the gates of Hades sh- or gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's letting us know that not only will the gates of hell um, withhold, but he will actually um, overcome them. He'll actually uh, kick them down, if I can use that language, because God Christ will plunder Satan's kingdom. And this he does when he sends us out into the world where we preach the gospel. He's plundering the strong man's house. And so the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We will walk through those gates in, um, of Satan's kingdom, which essentially is this world because he's the prince of the power of the air and he's the god of this world. And then we go and plunder, Christ plunders Satan's house um, through us. Um, the Lord uses some of that language in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where he's using the, the metaphor of overcoming uh, the walls by virtue of speaking the truth. In Second uh, Corinthians 10, he says in verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself, that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So that's certainly metaphorical language in terms of what takes place in our own lives, in our own mind as we uh, use the truth of God's word to overcome the foolish thoughts that we might have. But the same thing is true as we go forth out in the world and preach the gospel to other people. We pull down their foolish thoughts by um, preaching uh, God's word there, by preaching the um, truth. So he continues in here, and he says in verse 18, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, that seed again would be Christ. The blessings that are to be had are always to be had in Christ. And that's how Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, "Blessed uh, that we are blessed with all um, heavenly blessings in Christ. I'm going to read that again as well. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So it is in the seed, it is in Christ that blessings are to be had. And so all of the nations shall have blessings in Christ. That doesn't mean everybody in every nation. What it means is that, as we read in Revelation chapter 5, that people from every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe are taken out of this world and placed into um, Christ. And they are done that. That happens by virtue of the cross. And then he says, what is the most interesting thing for me here is he says, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Why do I find that interesting? Because in Genesis chapter 15, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, God had made an unconditional promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, I'll read that. He says, Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. Verse 2. And I will make of thee a great nation. In other words, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to do it. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Now I find that very interesting because here we have in Genesis 12, God saying, says he's going to multiply him and he's going to bless him. There's no conditions here. Then you get over here to Genesis chapter 22, and he says he's going to do these things because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now flip over to Genesis 26 and verses 2 through 5. In Genesis 26, Abraham is now dead, and the angel of the Lord is, or the Lord rather, is speaking to um, Isaac. And he says in verse 2 of Genesis 26, he said, And the Lord appeared unto him, appeared unto Isaac, and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. In other words, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I said I would to Abraham. Uh, Verse 4, And I will make 
thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Verse 5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So I have a question for you. We've gone almost all the way through the life of Abraham. When exactly did Abraham do that? When did he keep all of his charges? When did he keep all of his commandments? When did he keep his statutes? And when did he keep his laws? Was it when he lay with Hagar? I don't think it was then. Um, you know, was it when he walked all the way through the promised land in the very beginning? God said, I'm going to give you this land. He walked through the whole thing and ended up in Egypt and denied his wife because he was afraid the Canaanites were going to kill him, even though God had promised he would multiply him and make a great nation out of him, which he can't do, of course, if he kills him. He does that twice. Um, so I'm not, I don't know when Abraham obeyed those things. I'm being um, somewhat facetious here because the fact is Abraham did not. Christ did. So Abraham be, um, Abraham obeyed those things. Abraham kept those things in Christ were they kept. And we're going to cover a verse which will help us to appreciate that. But I find it so remarkable, what I'm sharing with you here, is that he says he's doing these things because Abraham obeyed him. And so what we can walk away from this, and I'm going to go over this a little bit more, is that our loving a father accounts what things he has gifted us to do, what things he has empowered us to do, as though we have done it ourselves. Righteousness is a gift, and yet it becomes us. It becomes our own. So... I'm going to run through a couple of several verses which would help us to appreciate this thing. We have the Bible opening with a wonderful promise in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Man hasn't been created yet. This is a purpose statement that obviously is um, put here. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, which existed before man was ever formed. We know that we were ordained unto this salvation before the world was ever formed. So there is a wonderful promise there, and it doesn't require man to do anything. Um, and yet man is going to do something. It reminds me of, um, uh, well, when my wife will ask me to do a job, it seems like one thing to her, but before I can get to the one thing she wants me to do, there are like six or seven other steps. I'm going to use the number seven. There are seven other steps that I have to get to and perform before I can do the one thing that she's asked me to do. So for God to make man in his image and likeness, he foresees that the cross is in there. He foresees that wicked hands will crucify him by the foreordained uh, knowledge and counsel of God. That will take place. So you have this, this constant um, intertwining of the uh, sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So here's a wonderful promise. And then we see that there's the fall in Genesis chapter 3, which, as I just shared with you, God already knew that was going to take place. That's actually part of the plan. And we see the condition of man before he is in the image and likeness of God. And Isaiah chapter 64, 6, the verses you are all familiar with, we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, 
No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. So that, that's the um, condition of man uh, before God starts to work on him. And we know that in, uh, in the chronology of the way things are set before us in Scripture that God gives um, the Israelites the Mosaic Law not as a means and agency by which they might be made righteous, but really as a vehicle to prove to themselves that they are unrighteous and then they can never attain righteousness and it would have to be imputed to them if they were ever to have it at all. By the law is the knowledge of sin, says the scripture. Um, By the law is sin strengthened. Um, So how do you get from um, where we are as non-righteous, no, not one, to... God saying, well, you know, you've obeyed everything. You've kept my laws, you've kept my statutes, you have been obedient. How do we get from here to there? Well, obviously, it's through Christ. Um, Christ himself, we know, is righteous. There are many places in the scripture that affirm that. When he was going to the cross, Pilate's wife uh, told uh, Pilate, you know, don't have anything to do with that righteous man, affirming that he was indeed righteous. Um, the centurion, when he sees the earth darkened between the sixth and the ninth hour, said, truly, this was a righteous man. So he has the testimony of men that he is righteous. In John seventeen twenty five, the Lord Christ, speaking about to his father, affirms that the father is righteous. He says, O righteous father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. So the father is righteous, uh, the son is righteous. Um, several places in the book of Acts when uh, the Lord is preaching through his um, saints, through Peter in particular and Paul, uh, Jesus is declared to be the righteous one. He's declared to be the just one, which is another word, uh, English word for the word um, righteous. So all throughout the Bible, Jesus has declared himself as being uh, righteous. So he's righteous, and so only somebody who is righteous and divine in nature can justify somebody who is not righteous. So last week we covered that section in James chapter 2 where it speaks of uh, Abraham being justified by works. And we went to the scriptures that said, well, no, that's not actually what the Bible says in terms of his justification, but rather we are justified um, by God himself. Um, We saw that God the Father justifies us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, it says very clearly, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So we clearly attribute the legal justification that men have to God the Father. And that work of justification was performed by Christ. We read that Isaiah 53.11. In Isaiah 53.11 it says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant, that would be Christ on the cross, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Christ, by virtue of what he has done, justified the saints, and that it is imputed to us by virtue of faith. That's Romans 5.1. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So, again, Christ is the righteous one, and through the work of Christ and God the Father, the will of God the Father, we um, have been justified. Now, I just read that it is by faith that we are justified, and so how do we get faith? And that's another interesting issue, because uh, when you're speaking to some people, they attribute the faith to themselves. All throughout the Gospels, the Scripture says that uh, people were healed by their faith. You'll see language like, thy faith hath made thee whole. By thy faith, you know, I have, I have, hast thou been healed. So God gives us faith, and yet 
ascribes that faith as though it is our very own faith. We know in John 5, 39, uh, Jesus says that this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So Jesus is telling us that what belief we have is a result of the Father's work. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses we've quoted many times, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus is ascribed to be the author, the originator of, the author and finisher of our faith. He is ever working with us to perfect us, to conform us into his own image, and he does so by giving us um, faith to do so and working with us in a, in a very real and very tangible ways, just like he's working with Abraham back here when he proved him and asked him to offer up his son. Obviously, God know, knew exactly how it was going to go. We see in the language here, I know now that thou um, believest me, but we... God already knew that. It was Abraham who needed to have his heart worked on. So with respect to this interesting uh, dynamic between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, uh, Philippians chapter 2 encapsulates that for us when he says here that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and then the verses I like, for it is God which worketh in you both, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That I would will to do something good was God working on my heart to make me will to do it. I'm doing it. I think it's all of me, and I'm enjoying doing it, but it was God that gave me the will to do it. So not only does he give me the will to do it, but the ability to actually do that thing that he has given me a heart to and a will to do. So just as faith is a gift... I want us to appreciate that righteousness is a gift as well. In Isaiah 54, 17, it says here, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness, their righteousness, that would be the servants of the Lord, their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Our righteousness is from the Lord. In Jeremiah 23, 6, we all know this verse. It says, In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. He's speaking of the church. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. So the Lord is our righteousness, which of course he gives to us, but yet he's going to attribute the righteousness as though it is our very own. Um, in Romans um, 5, 17 it says, for by one's man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, which is Jesus Christ. The gift of righteousness. So um, righteousness is clearly set before us as a gift from God. In verse 19 of uh, Romans 5, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So we are made righteous. Um, it is a gift of God. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, is I would call the cornerstone verse on this whole issue, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he hath made him, God the Father has made him, the Son, Christ, to be sin for us, 
who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we possess, by virtue of the work of Christ, by virtue of faith, by virtue of imputation of our sins to him um, and his righteousness to us, we possess the righteousness of, of God. Uh, we are conformed to his image, and that means if he's righteous, we would be righteous. We are partakers of the divine nature. And in 1 John, it says to us that we are as he is. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Abraham abided in Christ, and therefore Abraham sinned not. Abraham was obedient unto his laws, his statutes, and his precepts. We see that apply in Abraham's life. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whoever sinneth hath not seen him. That would mean continuously sinning. Hath not seen him, neither know him. Verse 7, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. So what righteousness we possess, what righteousness we do, we do because of Christ in us and what things he has done on our behalf. We are in him and he is in us. And as he is righteous, we are righteous. Now, this is where it's interesting, I think. There are many people in the scripture whom the Lord says are righteous individuals. Um, One of which is... um, Joseph, the husband of Mary, he's described as a just man. That actually is the word righteous there. He's described as a just man. Um, John the Baptist is described as a righteous man, a just man. Same word in the Greek there. John the Baptist's parents are described as just people, Elizabeth and Zacharias. They're described as being righteous. Um, Simeon, who's waiting for the consolation of Israel, who sees Jesus when he's being uh, presented at the temple when Mary has come to make an offer for her purification. According to the law, Simeon is described as being a righteous individual, a just man. Cornelius, the centurion, is described as being a just man. Same Greek word, righteous man. Um, Abel, when he had offered under God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, he's described as a righteous individual. And the biggest surprise of all, of course, is Lot himself, because when you look at his walk in his life, I don't know how it could happen by any way other than grace. He's described as a righteous individual. Three times the word righteous appears um, in this section here. In verse 7 of Second Peter chapter 2, it says, and delivered, meaning Christ, and delivered just Lot, that would be righteous Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man, second time, dwelleth among them, seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Three times he's described as being righteous. Now, in a broad context, there are places in the scripture where God refers to all of the church as being righteous, all of the church as being just. And so, That is how God views us. So I've showed us quite a number of things here in terms of how God views us. He views us as being righteous. Now, when I look in the mirror, that's not what I see, but that's not what God sees. What God sees is Christ in me, and he sees that I am righteous. So what's so very interesting in the scripture here is that in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless man, in this case, Abraham. He promises to bless him unconditionally, which is not unlike the promise we see in Genesis 1.27, where God says he's going to make us in our image and likeness. God promises to bless Abraham, 
And God knows that he will work through men or work through Abraham to accomplish his blessing. And then man does, by virtue of grace, by virtue of the faith given unto him, by virtue of the gift of Christ given unto him, man obeys, doing what God would have him to do. And then we see in Genesis 22 that God blesses the man for doing what God would have him to do. God blesses him for his obedience. And then we get to Genesis 26, we see that God um, grants man ownership of the work that man did, as though he is therefore deserving of the blessing and the promise that was given unto him. Now, this is where I think people go off the rails, is when they get to James there, then what they're going to do is they're going to say that, well, you know, Abraham was obedient uh, of all of the things that God set before him to do. He's declared to be just, and by virtue of his works, he's righteous. Therefore, he's justified by his own works. And so they take it too far, and they want to take the obedience that took place after his justification, after faith was given to him, after God's righteousness was imputed to him, and they want to take that and they want to backfill it retroactively to what took place before God did those particular works in point of time in his life. And I I think it's a mistake to do so. Um, But I think it is proper to look at Abraham as being righteous uh, by virtue of the righteousness that God imputed to him and by virtue of the works that God gave him the um, will to do and the ability to do because God says he did them. God attributes the works to Abraham. God attributes the obedience to Abraham. And so he looks on every one of us and he attributes um, the faith that he has given us. He calls it our faith. The righteousness that he has given to us, he says that we ourselves are righteous. So um, when you think of those things, you should appreciate when the Lord says that who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Certainly we read that it is God that justified, but nobody can lay anything to the charge of God's elect because they are indeed righteous. He sees them as being righteous, having been fully justified by God and being obedient to all of his statutes, all of his laws, and all of his commandments by virtue of the work that Christ has done It's nevertheless attributed to us. So um, that is what I want us to appreciate this morning is that uh, the real standing in which we have before the Lord by virtue of what he has done before us, done for us and imputed to us, that that is how he views us as faithful. Um, And he says that in in 1 John, he says, this this is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, even our Faith Again, the faith that he has given us is ascribed to us as ownership, just as righteousness is as well. And we'll conclude with that. Amen. Amen.